It's Monday, July 14th, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and Rick Santelli is yelling again. Why don't we get some hindsight early now? That's him, the CNBC reporter who reports from the Chicago Board of Trade, having it out with his fellow CNBC panelists, notably Steve Leisman. And as Leisman says, Rick, you've gotten almost everything you've said over the years wrong, but it doesn't matter because Rick Santelli has a cheering section behind him, so is yelling things. The traders in Chicago never contributed one penny to the credit crisis. Not one penny. I'm not sure what that... Not one penny. The reason why this is important, if it is important, is that it was Rick Santelli who pretty much named the Tea Party. It all came from a statement he made, maybe we're going to have a Tea Party here, objecting to a a Housing Asset Relief Act, and a movement was born. So I'm thinking, what movement will be born from what he's yelling this time? They were arguing about interest rates and so forth. And maybe it'll come from this section. But the general consensus of the economic community right now is to reject what you're talking about. Put this on America. We don't believe in consensus. They also reject talking over people. So, you know, if there was once an American political party known as the Know Nothings, maybe Santelli can start the consensus crappers, people who crap all over consensus because we're Americans, damn it. You never know where these phrases come from, right? The saboteurs, for instance, were named after shoes that were thrown in machines, and then everyone who was ever a spy during a war became known as a saboteur. So, consensus crappers, let's go with it. Today on the show, in the spiel, I'll be getting inside a statistic that was quoted on Sunday on one of the talk shows. Also on the show, I'll be memorizing a poem that we all know. Well, actually, we all know a quarter of it. I'm going to try for the other three quarters. But our headline is about the masthead here at Slate and how it's changing. Today here at Slate, a milestone, a valedictory, a changing of the guard. After six years, David Plotz will be stepping down as editor-in-chief. Replacing him will be Julia Turner. Hello, Julia, and hello, David. Hi, Mike. Hi, Mike. David, why? I realized I need to get home to Cleveland. That was the main (laughs) reason. You did bleed in Northeast Ohio. That is true. (laughs) I have been here for 18 years at Slate, an editor for six, and I have loved every single minute of it. But it's time for a new challenge. We, Julia and I and, and all of our colleagues accomplished everything that I'd hoped to accomplish at Slate. We grew traffic. We made it profitable. We brought in long form. We built a great podcast empire. We've done a redesign. We've launched our membership program, Slate Plus. I'm not plugging that right now, by the way. It's just a fact. It, it just okay. felt like it was time. it was time for me to find something new. And it was easy because Julia was has been my deputy for six years and has been ready to run the magazine probably for five and a half of them and is going to be an amazing editor. So I didn't feel, I didn't feel like I was leaving Slate in any rocky shoals. I just knew it was, it was a beautiful continuity uh, when I could hand it off to somebody who would do an incredible job with the magazine. And to be clear, you, John, Emily, that's still the political gab fest, yes? Yes, we will political gab fest. It would take a herd of uh, angry pandas to get me out of the studio. And Julia, you're staying on with the Culture podcast, I hope. Yes. Yes. Can't take me away from Steve and Dana. They got to keep me honest every week. In a sentence or less, what is your commitment to podcasting? Just listeners want to know. <laughs> Strongly <laughs> agree. That's good. That's good. I think you'll find, Julia, that Steve and Dana are just going to defer to you all the time now. <laughs> That's very evident on your show, David. <laughs> There's just a lot of deference and kowtowing. I can't wait. Uh, David, tell me about what was Slate before you joined because... Uh, 
What was the timeline? They invented the internet and then you joined <laughs> Slate quickly thereafter? I had never been on the internet when I came to work at Slate. That's amazing. Slate was not Slate. It was then called Boot. That was Mike Kinsley's beta title for it. And at an early meeting, I remember him saying, oh, we have, we have to change the name because I just learned that Boot means to puke. So that was why we got rid of Boot. What year? What year was that? 96. Early 96. I'd, I'd used email, but I had never been on the internet. And Julia, when did you come? And Why? <laughs> I came in 2002. Uh, I'd been working in New York at a magazine, Sports Illustrated Women. Actually, my, my brief tenure on the sports beat, Pesca, and it had folded, and I was about to take a job at another glossy monthly magazine. I'd applied also for this position in D.C. Uh, as basically the editorial assistant there and had interviewed with David. And in, in the middle of this process, he sent me an email saying, come join us. I, I, I want to offer you our job. And the money was worse, and the location was worse. Sorry, David. But I just couldn't resist Slate. It seemed so uh, beguiling and smart and interesting. And I'm so glad. I mean, it was such a fortunate decision. I think I was going on gut based on basically how awesome and interesting David seemed. And it was it was a good bet. Julia, where are you most excited to take Slate? I think that uh, any shift in Slate's strategy is going to be slow and gradual. I mean, as David said, we've been working together for six years. So I've spent a lot of time with him thinking about Slate's editorial strategy, and, and I'm very happy with where the magazine is right now. That said, obviously, uh, a panda blog. They can't write, Julia. They don't know how to write. It's Among a blog other things, they by, can't write. for, and about pandas, uh, featuring art of pandas. I think... The nature of our media and the nature of Internet journalism is that it is changing. It's constantly shifting. We constantly have new competitors. It seems like we have a new competitor every three seconds at this point. And it's really fun, I think, to see what all these new entrants are doing and, so, and sometimes to see what some of the old uh, legacy publications are doing, which means that we always have to be on our toes and figure out how we can shift what we're doing to be producing the best possible digital journalism that can exist. So... The short answer is it won't change much, and the long answer is it'll probably change a lot, and we don't know how yet. David, how will Julia's job change, or maybe even in ways that Julia doesn't realize that her job is going to change from what she does now, which the title is deputy editor, to editor-in-chief? In fact, her job will not change at all, because as, as keen-eyed observers of Slate know, and anyone who works at Slate knows, Julia has been doing the job of editor with me as co-editors, effectively, for the last two years. So it's a promotion for her on paper. In terms of the actual labor that she'll be doing, I don't think there's actually any difference. I don't know. I, I think it is different. I mean, it, the, the list of tasks is quite similar because in my role as deputy, I was it was basically just to expand David's capacity, to be like another brain for David that could go to a meeting or try to come up with a strategy about who to hire. But it's different to have the buck stop at your desk. You know, the number two, it's, it's a very... Uh, Cosseted role. You have a lot of power, but you get to be kind of behind the scenes, machinating, uh, and being the editor is is much more visible. And and also, it requires me to use my brain, and as opposed to having my brain be David's other brain. And again, they're they're similar, and and our brains are very simpatico, and that's why it's been such a joy to work with David all these years. But it's been interesting to read the site since I learned of this decision and feel like, oh, man, there's a typo in that blog post. That typo is on me. Like, I don't want there to be a typo there anymore. It's, it's a slightly, it's not like I ever liked it before, but it's a, it's a slightly different uh, aspect to the job. So I'm, I'm sure that will shift things as we go forward. Julia Turner, editor-in-chief of Slate, David Plotz, editor emeritus. 
Thanks, guys. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Two hundred years ago this September, Francis Scott Key witnessed the Battle of Baltimore aboard a ship in the Patapsco River. Rockets rained down on Fort McHenry from the English ship Erebus, named for the inky darkness of the Greek underworld. And mortars flared, launched from the vessels, the terror, the volcano, the meteor, the devastation, and the Etna. Wait, like the insurance company? No, like the active volcano in Sicily. And on that boat, a truce boat, Francis Scott Key watched as the flag of the young country rose the next morning, defiantly, triumphantly, inspirationally. He wrote a poem about it, you know. The third to last line is, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. But no, that is not the third to last line of the poem. That is the third to last line of the first stanza of the poem. That stanza is the national anthem, but the poem has four stanzas. And I would say that the other four are forgotten, but really they were never remembered in the first place. But I want to remember them. And joining me with some tips and tricks in remembering and memorizing the entire national anthem is Nelson Dellis. Nelson, could you please state your credentials? I'm Nelson Dellis. I'm three-time USA memory champion. I'm a grandmaster of memory and one of the leading memory experts uh, nowadays. In becoming memory champion, I know they have a number of categories and they ask you to memorize a deck of cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. They make us do cards, numbers, names, and poems as well. And I know there's this thing called a memory palace. Is that a thing that you use? And if so, how do you use it? That's the, probably the number one technique that I use and any other serious mental athlete uses in competition. It's a great way of keeping order and structure to what would be very um, abstract information. Mm-hmm. And you basically take a palace, and a palace can be something as simple as your home, your workplace, whatever. It's something that you know very well that you don't really have to think about. You can close your eyes and you can mentally walk through it. It's already memorized, right? Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. there all the time. You take whatever you're trying to memorize, whether it's a poem or a number or a name, whatever, and you turn that into a mental image and you store those images along a path in that place. The typical example I give is if you have a grocery list of items that you need to pick up, um, you would imagine yourself uh, at your doorstep, and you would put the first item on your list, where it might be um, tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you come up with a picture, a crazy, very bizarre, memorable picture for tomatoes, and you would incorporate it with uh, that location, that door. So I would picture just splattering, throwing tomatoes all over my front door. And, you know, you can imagine all the tomato sauce dripping down the door. And that would be your image. And then you would walk in the door and place the next object, you know, just inside the house and so on and so forth. Is this how you do the deck of cards? Yep, exactly. And the only added extra step is that for each card, I've gone through deck and assigned each card a preset image. Mm-hmm. For example, King of Clubs is Tiger Woods. Sure. That makes sense. Uh, king of Hearts is my dad, just because he's the king of my family, whatever. But Eight of Clubs, some of these cards I've had to do a little bit of a, uh, an encoding process. Between the vivid imagery and the memory palace, are you going to get me to learn these lines of the Star Spangled Banner? Uh, right now, you have me looking at it for the first time, so this would be like I was in competition seeing a poem for the first time, how would I approach it? Now, the first stanza we know, we sing it at hockey games and other sporting events. So let's just go to the second stanza. You want to take me through it? Tell me what to think about? 
for the general public, we should all kind of choose a memory palace. And I think the best one is always to choose your house. You know, we can start at the front door or maybe even better is just start at your bed. Just imagine when you wake up, this is where you start your day in your bed. Okay. The first line of the second stanza is on the shore dimly seen through the mists of the deep. Now, trigger, I wake up in my bed and what what would you do to remember the shore dimly seen? I would picture on my bed is is a shoreline. Yeah. Okay. To me, Gimli sounds like Gimli and when I think of Gimli, I think of the dwarf from uh, Lord of the Rings. Right. right? I picture on the shore there's Gimli uh, being seen. My vivid image is going to be different from yours. Okay, I woke up, I'm looking at my dresser, and there I see the image, like the hologram from Star Wars image, of Pauly Shore. Pauly Shore, dimly okay. seen. Does that... That's good. Except yeah. the one thing is you want to put him on your bed. Don't put him on the okay. dresser yet, okay. because that's going to be a place that we go to next. Okay, okay, right. So, <laughs> so I wake up, I turn over, and there's Pauly Shore, dimly seen. Oh my god, yeah. Okay. Um, so Shore, dimly seen, and then... We have through the mists of the deep, right? Yeah. Maybe right next to your bed, you have a uh, some type of bedside table. Mm-hmm. That'll be our next location. So I'm going to imagine maybe inside one of the drawers, I open it up and there's just a ton of mist that just comes like burling out. That's right? great. Yes. So there is an unfamiliar word here where the foe's haughty host in dread silence reposes. Now, I know what reposes means, but you might not, someone might not, and I'm not exactly sure. So I want to hear you deal with that and how to deal with a word you might not know what it means. So the first half would be where the foe's haughty host. Yeah. This is on my dresser, let's say. And foe, uh, I would think immediately of a toe just because it sounds like a toe and haughty host. So I read that differently, but when I hear it, I think of like a hot like a yeah. sexy yeah. host, uh-huh. right? Yeah, yeah. Hottie, hottie, whatever host. <laughs> right. So I open up this closet. There's this big toe, this faux toe, and uh, there's this sexy host kind of presenting this toe uh, to me. Okay. And then maybe next to your dresser you have, uh, let's say there's a bathroom there. We can go into the bathroom. And that's where we have in-dread silence reposes, right? Yeah. So I think of uh, dread reminds me of Judge Dread. Uh, Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. Yeah, if you don't know what that means, you just kind of break up the word into things you might recognize. So even if it doesn't mean what the word means. So repose, I would think of like, you know, someone posing, but doing it again and again. It's the sort of thing where I could define it for you, but it's I don't think that's going to trigger the memory. My dread is dreadlocks, right? Thinking of like, say, Bob Marley and dreadlocks doing a bunch of different poses, like sort of voguing as he does that. That's what makes it a bit fun is it's a little bit of improvisation and making it just totally outlandish. So let me thank you, Nelson Dellis. And let me also plug, this is a great thing you do. You founded this organization called Climb for Memory. It's a charity that raises money for Alzheimer's research through mountain climbs. So that's an awesome thing that you're doing. And I want to thank you for helping me memorize all the uh, Star Spangled Banner. No problem, man. Thank you. Good luck with the rest of it. I hope you can nail it. And now the spiel. Sometimes you hear a statistic so arresting that when you think about it, the stat goes from being unbelievable to being kind of unbelievable. 
In cases like this, there are hordes of checkers and statisticians who descend on the stat and they award it four Pinocchios or a rating of pants on fire or 6.3 on the fictive scale. We at The Gist are debuting right here, right now, our new truth-seeking stat service. When we need to vet a stat, when we need a veteran of vetting stats, and we need to vet stats with a stat vetting veteran on the double, it's called... Let's vet stats with a stat vet stat. Here on Let's Vet Stats with a stat vet stat, we have this claim from Cokie Roberts on ABC's This Week. I heard a report this week that in New York, your chances of getting murdered are 1 in 25,000. In Honduras, it's 1 in 14. You can't send children home to that. 1 in 14, that sounds, like I said, unbelievable. It means 7% of Hondurans are murdered. So there are 8.5 million Hondurans. That means that... Like half a million Hondurans become murder victims? Well, to vet this stat, we have our stat vet vet, author Jordan Ellenberg, who is the author of How Not to Be Wrong, The Power of Mathematical Thinking. Hello, Jordan. Hi. Hi. So in 2012, there were 7,172 murders. That's the latest year for which statistics are available, according to the UN. But that's not one out of 14. So what's going on with this stat? Yeah, it's a great question. I've been trying to figure this out. I mean, Honduras, there's no question there's a serious murder problem there, one of the highest rates in the world, about 90 homicide deaths per 100,000 people in that country. But that is not one out of every 14 people. I mean, that's essentially an impossible rate. There would be something like 7,000 per 100,000 people. So whatever uh, Roberts is saying there, it's not the usual definition of homicide rate. Do you have any idea how you could get to one in 14? Is this like extrapolating it over a lifetime or something? Well, that's one thought I had. There was a mention in The Economist of Honduras' high murder rate that does talk about that and do that extrapolation where saying if you had a homicide rate of 90 per 100,000 and you were subject to that rate every year of your life, how many people would eventually die of murder as opposed to all the other ways they might die? But that's a little bit ridiculous to take what's going on now in the middle of a massive drug war and say like, oh, well, what if that just persisted every month, every year for the next 50, 60, 70 years? That would be a completely different story and it's not really what we can expect. And then there's the whole idea of, you know, Cokie Roberts saying, you have a 1 in 14 chance of getting killed. Not only does it not seem right, what about the pronoun? Well, that's exactly. So I actually sort of disapprove of this whole way of framing the figure. It's well and good to talk about the rate of homicides or how many murders there are. But when you say you, it really depends who you are. I mean, it's like saying the chance that you'll die of lung cancer in the United States Every year it's 1 in 2,000. Well, that's not really true. If you smoke, there's one chance. If you don't smoke, there's a completely different chance. But there's no kind of mythical average person who actually faces that chance of 1 in 2,000. I know that men or men over 23 and are much more likely of being killed because of the drug wars and other things in Honduras. And 80%, one study showed that 80% of all murders were by guns of men under 40. But if you're a mother and you have a child, you still look at this situation and would rationally very much want your kid to get out of there. Absolutely. And in the end, I think living in that environment, the people who are subjected to that and who are making these desperate decisions that they're making, I promise you they are not getting their spreadsheets out and working it out that way. They just, they just feel murder around them. Right. Jordan Ellenberg is the author of How Not to Be Wrong, The Power of Mathematical Thinking. Thank you for being our vet, our stat vet vet. Thanks, Mike. Happy to help.
so there's that stat in context. But here's what I want to do, other than, I guess, debunking that statistic. I'd like to just note that Honduras is the most murderous country on earth, the most murderous country. And 80% of the murders are of males under the age of 40 by gun. There's not a hot war in Honduras. It's not Syria, where there's now 170,000 dead. But wars can be ended with peace accords. In a way, what's going on in Honduras is more insidious. Narco-trafficking, bad governance, really, actually, business decisions that stack up to being the world's most dangerous country. And if a mother in Chicago worries, rightly worries, that her baby has a chance of being murdered, know that Honduras is six times as bad as in Chicago, and in some cities in Honduras, twice, three times as bad as that. And if a mother in Chicago ships her kids to relatives in another city to increase their life expectancies, we would probably say, that must be a tough choice on her, but she's probably being a good mother. But when a mother in Honduras does that, we probably should say the same thing. And that is the impossible choice around the immigration debate. It's mothers making hard choices and choosing the USA as their refuge. But of course, the USA cannot harbor every refugee. And I do not have any better answers than a vague idea toward compassion and away from demagoguery. And even though we did some quality stat vetting here, I just wanted to end this discussion with a little emphasis on the humanity and not just the numbers. And that is it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is stepping down as producer of Slate Podcasts and will henceforth be the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Therefore, Andy Bowers will officially be the ex-Chancellor of the Checker in addition to serving as executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please subscribe to The Gist in iTunes and write us a review. The reviews help us in iTunes. We also have an email address that I'll share with you now. It's thegist at slate.com. We have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash thegist. Either email us or put on Facebook. I do like getting reaction on my spiel. Sometimes they go out there. I'm like, ooh, I hope that landed and don't always know how. Sometimes I try to spark a debate or at least a discussion on Facebook. So I'm going to try to do more of that because I really do enjoy the feedback. To sign up for the daily email, go to slate.com slash gist email, and then we'll send you a notification as soon as the show is posted. I would also like to announce that I have been promoted from assistant falconer for bird-based abatement to head falcon, actual falcon. I want to thank you for your confidence, your support, and the delicious diet of slow baby doves and grouse.